So what do you remember about Noah? The title for today's sermon is God Remembered Noah. But I want you to begin simply by recalling to yourself what you remember about Noah and the story of the flood. What what is it that strikes your fancy? Maybe it's the details of the ark. You're fascinated by that. Maybe it's the animals coming in two by two. Maybe it's the rainbow in the clouds. Something comes to your mind when you think about Noah. Well, in addition to some of the more familiar aspects of the story, I'm going to begin spending a good bit of time in this sermon reflecting on the righteousness of Noah. Now, it may have popped into your mind. Is anybody, is that the first thing that came to your mind, the righteousness of Noah? Yeah, it wasn't mine either. But I hope that after this sermon, it will be one of the central thoughts that comes to your mind when you think about the story of Noah. Just as God remembered Noah, I want you to remember Noah. And hopefully you will remember him in the ways that God intends for you to remember him. This is not, I'm not going to walk through each verse. I'm plucking verses and looking at the whole uh, of this text of scripture. But you're going to want to have your Bibles open because I'm going to point to various verses in this section. There's five basic points. And the first one is that Noah was a man of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 is explicit. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen and reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So how would you have reacted If God showed up at your door and said to you, I am going to destroy the world, how would you react? God very graciously gives Noah a warning. He says to him, I will bring a swift and terrible judgment on all flesh. Noah believes him. And rather than spending all of his time living for this present world, I want you to hear that. Like think about your lives and think about how much of your life is spent living with and dealing with problems in the present. Noah, after hearing this warning, gives priority to that judgment day. The text doesn't tell us, but how often does Noah sacrifice doing other things because he's preparing for that flood? Honey, can we go to the lake today and go for a swim? Sorry, honey, I've got to work on the ark. Don't you think you can work on that next week? After all, it's still waiting for you. 
You see, Noah believed God's word, his word of warning, and that belief was evident in his uh, priorities of how he lived this life. And the writer of Hebrews tells us explicitly that he becomes an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. And so the connection with us is very simple. Noah was a man of faith. You need to be a man or a woman of faith. Noah was warned of a coming judgment. You too have been warned of a coming judgment. We haven't been commanded to build an ark. But we too must respond in reverent fear. And we must live our lives now in this present world in a way that demonstrates that we care more about that coming judgment day than we do about today. And so I ask us all, if someone were to investigate my life, would they be convinced that my lifestyle, by my lifestyle, that I am preparing for the final judgment? was obvious to people in Noah's day what is that big thing you're spending so much time on Jesus is very clear to us that Noah's flood is a foreshadow of the final judgment just as Noah's flood occurred so the final judgment will occur and it's not pleasant for us to think about final judgment even when somebody uses the curse word damned, they don't really meditate on what it would be for someone to suffer damnation. On the day that the flood came, people were getting married. Some were bearing children. Some were sick. Others were in the prime of life. Life was just occurring. And bam, the flood came. The point is not that any of those things are wrong. The point is that those things are not our first priority. Jesus said this is what's going to happen on the final day. People will be living their lives. They will be doing their things. And he will come. And if they have not prepared, it will be too late. Jesus tells us that the flood will be swift, it will be terrible, there will be no sugarcoating it. And when he comes, the reason why the final judgment must come is that God is intending to eliminate all evil from the earth. People ask, why? there's a God, why is he not doing something about evil? Tell them he is going to do everything that you want him to do about evil. The problem is you're going to be included with it as well unless you're trusting in his provision. Listen to Genesis 6, 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now just to be clear, many tried to make a case that Noah's flood was a local flood. The text just does not allow that option. You might want to throw out all of scripture if you want. 
But you can't say that there's just a local flood. Genesis 7.23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those were with him in the ark. Now, current scientific theory tells you that the worldwide flood is impossible. How could there be water above the highest mountains? And, you know, Mount Everest is 29,000 feet, so that creates a, you know, a huge problem for some people. And I'm not getting into all that except to say that obviously the mountains and the geography of the land was very different at that time. I don't know exactly how that was, um, but there was great upheaval when that occurred. There were volcanoes, there were cat- uh, uh, tectonic shifts in plates, and it just lots of things had to have been happening during that time. But it was a worldwide flood. I wonder if part of the reason why people struggle to want to accept that there's a worldwide flood is because they don't want to believe that there will be a final judgment. There is a judgment coming, it will be swift, and it will be terrible. We must remember Noah by emulating Noah in his faith. You see, we have been told this too. We have been warned of the final judgment. We then need to live our lives, not necessarily building an ark, but by clearly demonstrating that there will come a judgment and that true life occurs on the other side of that judgment. Why do you take time to come to worship? Surely it's not because we have the best singers and we you know, have the best preacher. And all. No, you can do other things. You do it to hear God's word and to prepare your heart, to cling to your faith, to grow in your faith, so that you can continue trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second point. Noah is a reminder that God has mercifully determined to save some from the judgment. You ever think about that? The fact that you're even here today is a demonstration that God had mercy on some? I mean, the earth could really, really look like Mars right now. God, in his mercy, has decided to save some. That's the only reason why we're still here even at this moment. You see, within the heart of God are two complementary attitudes. They appear to us as contradictory, but in his heart they're not. The one hand, God says, I am going to obliterate all evil. And on the other hand, he says, I want to have mercy on some. And that's why we're still here today. The story of Noah and the ark highlights both aspects of God's character. God has remembered Noah, and in that there is mercy. Third point, Noah is a reminder that salvation is based on righteousness. Noah is a reminder that salvation is based on righteousness. Without question, there's, there's no doubt in this text, God wants you to remember that Noah was a righteous man. 
the very first statement in the text, and it is the beginning of the text of this section of, of Scripture because it begins, these are the generations of Noah. The very first statement, Noah was a righteous man. Noah was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. If you look down at Genesis 7-1, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen you are righteous. So if you're going to remember Noah correctly, you have to remember that he was righteous. And it was his righteousness that God saw in Noah when he provides a way for him to escape the flood. And this is the point, this is the, the moment in the text where it is, it is a little bit confusing. I bet I've read ten commentaries on this text, and at the end of them I'm still, all of them, it's just slightly confusing. The question boils down to this. What is meant by righteous? And it seems like a pretty simple question right off the bat. And it boils down to this. By saying Noah is righteous is the, is the implied meaning that Noah was perfectly righteous or that he was relatively righteous. Now, my gut reaction, hopefully all of our gut reaction, is to say, oh, Noah can't be perfectly righteous. No one is perfectly righteous, except for Jesus. And we also already know, because we've read a little bit far in the story, that Noah gets drunk later on, and we know he's not perfect, at least after the flood. But there are some significant problems with saying that Noah was only relatively righteous. If Noah was relatively righteous and it was only God looking at him in his relative righteousness, what does that mean? Does Noah's relative righteousness now become the standard by which we're saved? And you should be saying, no. How could God ever lower his standard? If the flood is a foreshadow of the final judgment and Noah makes it through the flood because God is looking at his righteousness and his righteousness is imperfect, how does he make it through? I don't think that we are to remember Noah by thinking of him as just a relatively good guy. Benji Thomas, you're a good guy. Relatively righteous. See, I tried to choose someone besides John. <laughs> relatively righteous, Benj. And God sees your relative righteousness. You're better than the rest of us. And now you go through the glory. Hardly, right? Now, there's a Hebrew word, blameless, that's also in here. And that word is tamim, and it means complete. That means without any spot. And I'm not trying to confuse you here, but it's a tension in the text. It's actually a tension throughout all of Scripture. The word righteous and blameless in many contexts can and must mean absolute perfect righteousness. Oh, for instance, it says God is righteous. Oh, God's only partially righteous? No, he's fully righteous. How about God's law is righteous? Well, fully righteous. 
And we know that in order to get to eternal life, in order to go through the judgment day, God demands perfect righteousness. But when God is speaking of certain people, sometimes he uses the word righteous, even though we know that they're not fully righteous. And there's nowhere in scripture where he's like, this guy was a real tweener. We're not sure about this guy. And that's why, turn over if you want to 2 Peter 2, 5-9, we hear some people that we go, this is really questionable, are called righteous. So 2 Peter 2, verses 5-9, If he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, that's fine, talking about Noah, good, 6 If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, and all of us are going that know the story of Lot, he is not someone I'd put in that category. He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Well, boy. Both the passage in 2 Peter and the passage back in Genesis that we're in makes very, very clear to us that if you're not in the category of righteous, you don't make it through the judgment. You see, God doesn't rescue the wicked. He rescues the righteous. How can someone as flawed as Lot be counted as righteous? And then you think, well, I mean, Noah's a lot better than Lot was. I mean, what is that standard? I don't think Genesis is going to answer that question for you. Noah is simply portrayed to you as righteous. And we are right to describe a person as righteous who has a sincere faith, walks with God, and seeks to live in obedience to God's commands. We're right to call that person righteous. In the situation of Noah, the way that he lived his life was clearly different from the rest of the world around him. We don't know the details of his life, but we're told that he built the ark, and obviously he's up there hammering away when he could have been doing other things. People came by, hey, let's go out tonight. No, no, I'm working on the ark. You know, He lived his life differently than the rest of the world. And we have no testimony of Noah. I mean, possibly we could have like asked him, like I could ask Benji, and I could see him shaking his head back and forth. Maybe if Noah were here today, he would have assured us. I know that's said of me, but I'm not. In my heart, in my thoughts, I do lots of wrong things, but that's not what we're told. I believe that we are supposed to take this word at face value. We are told that Noah was righteous, and we are not to think of him at this point as relatively righteous. God's requirement in order to make it through the judgment is righteousness, and Noah meets the requirement. Now, trying to bring that together with the rest of Scripture that says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I get it. That's a challenge. 
So I've come, you can maybe work this out differently, but I've come to the conclusion that I remember Noah in two different ways. I can remember Noah as a man like me. And in that sense, he's not perfect. He's only relatively righteous, if you want to think of him that way. He is righteous only through faith. You mean God God did tell him, you have to build the ark if you're going to make it. He didn't just say, you're righteous, therefore you're, you're good. Don't do anything. He does tell him you've got to get in the ark. God says to Noah, I'm going to give you a provision for you to be rescued. But I think it's really important that that Noah's imperfection does not become clear until after the flood. You see, Noah's nakedness is uncovered after the flood. We know after the flood that Noah too was in need of a Savior. We know as well that Noah's children were in need of a Savior. But that's only after the flood. Noah was justified like you, faith in his coming Messiah. There's a other aspect of Noah's faith, and that is that surely he must have fought against doubts. And I'm just going to give one example of this. Noah builds an ark over a 100-year period. I don't know about you, but if you build a building and it took you 100 years to build it, you would almost think that some of it would be rotting by the time you finished the end of it. Also, he's building a boat. And he's told to be careful to put pitch on the inside and the outside of it, sealing up the cracks so that the water won't get in. And yet at the same time that he's told to do that, he's told to leave a humongous hole in the side of the boat. Do you ever think about that? You don't think that Noah started going, God, are you sure this vessel is going to get me through the flood? Everybody knows what happened to the Titanic when it got a hole in it. It went to the bottom of the sea. Well, he purposely has this huge hole in the side of his boat. It's not where you put a hole in the side of the boat. And then you have this, this, this door that must come up, and I'm sure maybe some pulley system he can get the door up and stuff, but when you put a door up like that, you're going to have cracks all the way around the outside. And how do you seal that up in the moment when the flood's coming? I'm... I, I don't know, I don't read in the text, but if I were Noah, I'd be going, am I really certain this is going to get me through? Am I really certain that God is going to seal this up and I'm going to make it through the flood? I'm going to liken this to you. I tell you almost every week that the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross will get you through the judgment. But you don't know that he will suffice until the day of the judgment. Noah wasn't certain that that ark would get him through until the judgment came. And I think the same thing is true of us. 
You are to live your life trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that God's provision is enough, even though that you won't really know it's enough until the judgment is swirling around you and the blood of Christ fully protects you. So remember Noah. But I think it's also possible to think of Noah from a different perspective. In this way, he's not really like us at all. So in some way, I think of Noah, he's like me. Struggles with faith, tries to walk with God in this world, those kind of things. In another way, he's not like us at all. In this sense, Noah is like Jesus. The Bible talks about that there are types of Christ. And by type, we mean this. That sometimes in the Old Testament, God will take someone or something and he will um, uh, try to explain who the Messiah will be in advance using some other person or thing. It's not really the Messiah, but it helps us to understand the Messiah. And I think that is what God wants us to see in Noah. When you remember Noah, you are to remember his righteousness, and that should direct you right to the righteousness of Christ. Similar to like uh, sacrificial lambs were types of Christ, right? The lamb didn't actually take away your sin, but he was blameless, and he was supposed to take away your sin. It was to be a substitute, that, that sort of thing, to help you understand of Christ. I think Noah's the same way. And when a person is functioning like a type of Christ, the Bible tends to present them in an ideal manner. Okay? You know, for instance, the sacrificial lamb was, you're supposed to find a blameless lamb. Now, I don't know if you've ever done animals, if you've been on a farm. There are no blameless animals. There are no perfect animals with no imperfections on them whatsoever. We all have flaws. But he talks about a blameless one, right? Think about David when he kills Goliath. When he's in the story of Goliath, he's a man of perfect faith. He's crushing the enemy. He's doing all these things, right? He is functioning at that time as a foreshadow of the Messiah, as a type of Christ. Only later do we see Noah fall with Bathsheba. We know he's not the right Messiah. So what we see here in Noah, and I think this is why he's described as righteous and blameless and walked with God, because that's the way you're supposed to think of Christ. And it is in in that righteousness that salvation occurs. And that brings us to the fourth point. Noah is a reminder that we are saved because we are with the righteous one. Throughout this passage, the only person that is dealt with is Noah. There are eight people who are redeemed through the flood. God could care less about them at this time in the story. The only mention of any character of anyone is Noah. God gets down to one solitary man. And it's with Noah that he establishes his covenant. Everyone else in this story is redeemed because they are with Noah. Once you begin seeing this, it is everywhere in the text. 
Genesis 6, 18 and 19, God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. You, your sons and your wives, with you. Verse 19, every living thing of all flesh shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Here's my impression. If all those animals and all those people got on the ark and Noah was not on the ark, the ark would have sunk. Genesis 7, 1, go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous. I don't care about them. It's you. You're the righteous one. Genesis 7, 7, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his wives with him went into this ark to escape the waters of the flood. It's always with Noah. The animals are with Noah, Genesis 7, 15. And even in Genesis 7, 16, when they all enter, you're talking about all these people get in the ark, and it says, um, all flesh went in as God commanded them? No, him. And the Lord shut him in, meaning Noah. Everyone else, man, kids, animals, everybody, really kids at that, old adult kids, are shut in because they're with Noah. Genesis 7.23, only Noah was left, and those who were with him. Now look closely at Genesis 8.1. And this is where I get the, the, the end of the, uh, the title of the sermon. God remembered Noah. If you want to mark one verse in your Bible, this is the verse to mark. This is the central moment in all of this text that we read. God remembered Noah. And I'm trying to show this to you through a visual. I don't often do this, but I think it's the only way you're going to see it. In Scripture, in Scripture, God often, or the writers of Scripture, will often give structure to a passage. And, and uh, theologians call this a chiasm because it looks like an X. Half of an X, right? So, chi is the Hebrew word, or I think it's Greek word actually, chiasm, um, like this, the X. So, it's half of an X. In this passage, this big, all this section of scripture, why we read all that scripture is to help you see that God starts, He meets with Noah. I'll try to get these, these right in my. So, in chapter 7, verse 4. Seven days of waiting for the flood. Chapter 7, verse 10. Seven days of waiting for the flood. Chapter 7, verse 17. Forty days of flooding. Chapter 7, 24. 150 days of water triumphing. Okay? Then in chapter 8, verse 3. 150 days of water receding. Chapter 8, verse 6. There's 40 days of waiting. Chapter seven or chapter eight, verse ten, another seven days. Chapter eight, verse twelve, another seven days. Do you see the purposeful structure of this in the text? And what is at the center? What is the central place in between this Genesis eight one? God remembered Noah. Why does the flood begin reciting? Why does the flood end? Why is there an end to that? Because God remembered Noah. 
Now, God doesn't forget Noah. It's not like he got amnesia. Oh, I forgot him. I was thinking about other things, and there's the ark. I better get him out of here. Um, Remembering is a way, it's covenantal language in Scripture. God is remembering his covenant, his covenant of blessing to Noah. He's remembering all of his covenant promises. He's remembering them. What do you think God is going to do when you are going through the judgment day? He is going to remember Jesus Christ. And that's the only reason why you're going to make it through that flood. Your salvation depends upon God being faithful to remember his covenant promises to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who has perfectly fulfilled God's law and kept all of the demands of the covenant. You and I are saved not because we're with Noah, but because we're with Jesus. So as you read this passage, I want you to think of Noah two ways. You can, you can identify with Noah. You can relate to him. You can try to be a man of faith with him. You can strive to be righteous in an unrighteous world. That's all good. But at the end of the day, you've got to remember Noah in the other perspective, that he is a type of Christ, and you are trusting in Christ because you are with Christ, and that's the only way you're going to make it through the judgment. This is why Paul in the New Testament is all about with Jesus, with Jesus. And he likes to use the phrase, in Jesus. You're in Jesus. You're in him. Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you remembering him? That's what the sacrament is about. That's what we're doing in the sacrament, remembering the death of Jesus Christ. Because on that judgment day, it's not going to be about you. The Father is going to look at Jesus Christ, and he's going to look at his perfect righteousness, and he's going to look at his suffering death, and he's going to say, that's enough. That's enough. Evan Avery, you can come in because you're with Jesus. That's it. That's your hope. Now I hope that that will also result in you living now differently. Don't go, oh great, that's great, I'll go on and do what I want to do. Because if that's the way you respond to this, you're not responding in faith. Trust in Jesus Christ. Spend time with Jesus Christ. Give yourself to him. Leave your sin. You know, you might have been struggling with sin and you feel like it's just too strong for you. You can't overcome it. You just What's the use of fighting anymore? Remind yourself that there is a judgment coming and that it's worth it to continue to fight against sin. But don't trust in your goodness to get you through that day. Continue clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. So as this sermon is closing, and as we move into communion, some of you have been trusting in Christ, and you just need to be encouraged to keep on trusting. Don't lose your confidence. Don't look at the big hole in the ark and go, I don't know if this is going to get me through. Keep trusting in Christ. He will bring you through. But then others, 
maybe have never truly placed all their hopes in Jesus Christ. They've never really said, I want to live for eternity. And I care more about making it through the judgment than I do just about experiencing pleasure in this life. And if that's you, today is the day for you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give yourself to him. Elders, if you would, please come forward.